This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Looking today at verses 1 through uh, 26 through the chapter. Today we reach the end of our series of studies in Exodus, Exodus 1 through 20, uh, through this climactic episode of meeting with God, uh, the Lord giving them the Ten Commandments. Exodus continues, of course, with uh, further elaboration on that law and with the detailed design for the tabernacle, the tent of worship that Israel was to construct. But uh, today we reach chapter 20 and draw this series to a close. Uh, Some time ago, several years ago, actually, I preached through the Ten Commandments, looking at each one in detail. We're not going to do that this time, uh, but rather look at them more as a whole and look at them more in the context in which they fall, specifically uh, with reference to the verses that come after the giving of the Ten Commandments, and take a look at those today as well. So Israel has come out of Egypt. Uh, They are prepared to meet with God. And so we pick up in chapter 20 of Exodus, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you 
that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. People stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. We give thanks to the Lord. Uh, Let's go to him in prayer, ask for his blessing on our study of it now. Our Father, we do pray for the light that only you can give on your word as we study it. Father, we pray that you would guide our thinking, guide our thoughts to a right understanding of your word and a good heart response to it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Unfortunately, today, when most people hear of the Ten Commandments, uh, as likely as not, what comes to their mind or the association they make with it uh, is the, it seems, endless court cases over whether or not the Ten Commandments can be displayed at such and such a location. And others look at the Ten Commandments and they see what in their eyes is simply a time-worn code of a way of life that really doesn't have much to do with those of us who live in the 21st century. Which raises a good question. Are the Ten Commandments relevant for us today? Not only in the behavior that they prescribe and forbid, But are they relevant to us today as Christians? What do they have to say to those of us who are believers in and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, as we study them this morning, I hope we'll answer those questions, maybe more. Uh, Really, this chapter in many ways forms the center, uh, the theological center uh, of the book of Exodus. Uh, the Exodus event, their redemption out of Egypt, together with their meeting with God, receiving the Ten Commandments, you could say was really the most pivotal event in the history of God's redemption up until the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a, a major turning point, a major event in Scripture. As I often say, the Bible's a big book. Uh, you probably won't be intimately acquainted with every chapter of it, but there are certain chapters you ought to know. Exodus 20 certainly falls in that category, the giving of the Ten Commandments. If someone asks you, where do you find the Ten Commandments in the Bible? I hope you would know. Exodus 20. If you want bonus points, you could say Deuteronomy 5, but at least know Exodus 20, uh, along with other chapters like, uh, like Luke 2 for the birth of Jesus, or 1 Corinthians 15 for the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Exodus 20 ought to be a chapter that you know well and can bring to mind readily. Again, the Lord has brought Israel out of their bondage. He has brought them now to Mount Sinai, sometimes referred to as Horeb. Uh, He's met with Moses. The people are prepared to meet with him. And here in this chapter, they actually finally meet. And the Lord introduces himself to his people and calls them uh, to the life that he lays before them in covenant with him. In other words, to put it in short, he defines the relationship. 
What is this relationship between Israel and Yahweh, the Lord, going to look like? Well, that's that's what he's doing here. Uh, now, I think that these verses, these commandments, have a great deal to say to us as well, not just to ancient Israel. And we'll look a little bit at how those apply to us. So he gives them the Ten Commandments, what we know is the Ten Commandments, in Hebrew the Ten Words, sometimes known as the Decalogue, which means ten words, uh, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. And as we look at these passages, these, these verses before us, we want to go through them, but we also want to look at it a little bit more big picture than that. So as we look at this chapter, I want us to look first in the first place at the grace that God has shown to his people. We want to see the grace that God has shown to his people. All too often it's easy to jump right into the commandments, but we need to look at verses 1 and 2 because those are absolutely critical for rightly understanding the commandments. The grace God has shown his people. Verse 1, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Lord says two things to them there. First of all, who he is. First thing he says to them is, I am Yahweh. In other words, I am the one who appeared to Moses in that burning bush. We learned about that back in Exodus chapter 3, where the Lord meets in this bush that's burning and yet is not consumed, the presence of God there, and calls Moses to go to Egypt to lead the people out. And Moses raises the question, well, if they ask, who sent me, what do I say? And the Lord says, I am who I am. Tell them, I am uh, has sent you. The name is Yah or Yahweh or Yahweh in in Hebrew. Uh, Tell them the Lord. It's typically in our versions uh, translated with the small cap Lord, L-O-R-D, in small caps to distinguish it from the Hebrew word Adonai, which can mean master or Lord, which is usually written in the customary way. But when it's Yahweh, the covenant name of God, it's written in these small caps. And that's the name that's used there. So he introduces himself. He says, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I'm the one who appeared to Moses, who sent Moses to you. I'm the one of whom Moses spoke to you and have brought you to myself. Now, that's important because... He appeared to Moses in a burning bush. He appears to Israel in a burning mountain. And he introduces himself. He says, I am the Lord, your God. Now, we can read that on a couple of levels. That as he, he tells who he is, that he's the Lord, their God. One, he is their God because he's the God of heaven and earth. He's the maker of heaven and earth, the sustainer of heaven and earth. He is the God of every person, of every creature, because he's the one who reigns. He's the one who rules. So in a general sense, yes, he is their God. He's everyone's God. The God. But he's also their God in a more personal way because of what he has done, because of this relationship now that he has initiated and brought them into. And that brings us into the second thing he says here in verse 2, and that is what he's done for them. Notice this. The Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't Aaron. It certainly wasn't Israel themselves. But it was the Lord who, through the plagues, the destruction on Egypt, wearing Pharaoh down, uh, brought them out of Egypt and sustained them and provided for them in the wilderness. So the Lord introduces himself by saying who he is and explaining what he's done for them. Now, those who have studied such things tell us that this passage actually reflects 
an ancient form, a customary form for making uh, a contract or a relationship between nations, especially a stronger one and a weaker one, uh, sometimes referred to as a suzerain-vassal treaty. Um, it does seem that it follows some of the particulars of that, including the Lord, who's the stronger party here, introducing himself and saying what he's done. Now, we don't want to make too much of that, although it's if that was a customary or familiar form of the day, then Israel might have recognized the nature of this relationship that God is establishing. Worth keeping that in mind. But the point is, the Lord here comes to them and tells what he's done for them. This is extremely important. Why? Because it helps us understand the nature of the Ten Commandments. You see, God didn't come to Israel in Egypt and say, here in your slavery, here are my laws. If you keep these laws, I might bring you out of Egypt. If you keep these laws well enough, you may earn your deliverance and I'll bring you out. That's not what happened. God came to them in their slavery. He brought them out of Egypt first. And then he gives them his law. He redeemed them. Then he gives them his law. That is absolutely critical for understanding the nature of the commandments for them and the nature of the commandments for us today. Because what you have is this pattern. First, redemption. Then, the commandments. All too often, we tend to get those reversed. You know, if I can just keep the Ten Commandments well enough, God's going to be finally, maybe, be pleased with me. And then he'll save me. Rubbish. You'll never, never, ever earn God's salvation by keeping the law. You see, the Lord gave his law not to an enslaved people, but to a redeemed people. People he had already saved, people he'd already brought out. That applied to them, but it also applies to us. We don't want to put the cart before the horse. Now, as we study the commandments, we need to recognize that God gives these to a redeemed people. Do these commandments have anything to say to people in, in, in general, Christian or non-Christian? Absolutely, because they reflect the character of God, because they reflect his moral standard, because they reflect, therefore, the standard by which every human being will be judged. So they are relevant to all people at all times and all places. Even a non-Christian violates them not only to his peril before God, but to his own harm in this world. But we need to recognize that God comes to a people he has redeemed, he has brought to himself, and says, I am the Lord, I am your God, I am the one who has redeemed you. Now, here is the path which I call you to walk. Here is how I call you to live as my redeemed people. We need to recognize that, that order that follows. First, salvation, first, redemption, then the Lord gives them his law. Now, In Galatians, Paul wrestles with, does the law replace the promise given to Abraham? No. Salvation to Abraham was a gift of God's grace received by faith. And that's still true here with the giving of the law. The law is not a new plan. Now you have to earn your way to God. Abraham simply had to trust God. But you, you got to work hard, keep these commandments. No, it doesn't change that. It does regulate the life of the believer but it is in no way his means of earning salvation. Well, then that brings us to the boundaries that God sets for his people. 
How are these, these people now, they've known nothing but slavery in Egypt. How are they to live as those who've been brought into this relationship with God? That's the question that's before them. And God establishes what we call the Ten Commandments as boundaries, general principles to govern and regulate their lives for their welfare as well as for the glory of God. And that's what we see then in these verses that follow, the boundaries that God sets for his people. Or you want to change the metaphor, you could say the path that he puts before them to walk. Uh, but verses 3 through 17 have what we would, would know as the Ten Commandments. Now, as we look at them, keep a couple things in mind. Number one, remember what Jesus said about them in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not enough just to keep these in some outward, minimal fashion. Well, I've never killed anybody, so I'm good. God's pleased with me. Jesus teaches us that it's not just the outward behavior God is concerned with, but it is the the heart, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So that Jesus could say, you know, obviously if you murder someone, you've broken the commandment, but if you hate someone in your heart, you despise that person, you're violating the commandment. It's not as bad as killing them, but it is a violation of the commandment. Or the same thing with adultery, as Jesus teaches. It's certainly bad to commit literally physical adultery. But Jesus says even even the attitude of the heart of lust, while not as bad as outward adultery, is nevertheless a violation of the command of God. It, it incurs guilt before God. So Jesus points out that God is concerned not certainly with our outward behavior. He is that. But he's also concerned with our hearts. So that it's not enough to have some outward, minimal, bare-bones obedience to these things and say, God's pleased with me. Where's your heart? What would God see if he looks at your heart? So let's keep that in mind as we go through. Also regarding the structure of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are really Godward, directed toward God. Uh, and the last six are more horizontal, our human relationships uh, among one another. And that reflects a common pattern. The Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And then we get to praying for our daily bread. Um, so that, that pattern is familiar to us. Even the two great commandments where Jesus summarizes the law of the Old Testament. The first one is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second is love your neighbor as yourself. The vertical, our relationship with God, takes priority than our relationship with one another. Not only because it's Less important in a sense in our relationship with God, but our relationship with God is going to affect then our relationship with one another. That's why it always deals with our relationship to God first. So let's look at it. Let's look at the Ten Commandments. Number one, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. Now remember he said, I am the Lord, your God. Now, in a culture where lots of gods were worshipped and paid attention to, the Lord comes to them as the one true and living God the one who demonstrates who he is by having brought them out of this other nation, which itself was a source of amazement. Whoever heard of a God who did such a thing? It says, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, The point there is not so much that, you know, among all your gods, I'm to be first. The point is that in my presence, which is everywhere, you are not to be interacting with or worshiping or following other gods. Now, we tend to take that in a very literal form of, of physical idolatry, bowing down to an image. Uh, but we need to recognize that idolatry is far more uh, deep than that. Even in that day, uh, even where it might take the form of bowing to some image of some other god, it was still first a matter of the heart. 
And we have our idols and our temptation to idolatry just as they did. Uh, it was Calvin who famously said our hearts are idol factories, I-D-O-L, factories, um, that we're constantly looking to things to be our refuge, to be our protection, to be our help, to be our strength, to be our comfort and consolation other than the Lord himself. Those things may be illicit, they may be illegal, they may be perfectly fine, but they are things that we turn to that really have the priority of our heart, that really have the primary affection of our heart other than the Lord himself. And we often see what those priorities are as we look at our lives and see how uh, those things, how our time is spent, how our money is spent, how our energies are directed. And those give us some clue to who is the true God of our heart or who may be the idols that are ruling in our heart. But God insists that he have the place in our lives as our God. doesn't mean we can't enjoy other things, but that he comes first. After all, he's the one who redeemed us. He's the one who has given us life. They were brought out of Egypt. We were brought out of sin and death through the work of Jesus. Second commandment we find in verses 4 through 6. I can remember as a child growing up learning the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And uh, inevitably you come to the Ten Commandments in the Catechism. And every child who's learning the Catechism eventually comes up against the Second and the Fourth Commandments. Always loved, you shall not murder. That one I could memorize. The Second and the Fourth Commandments were the long ones. And uh, it is it is long. Second commandment in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath, or bow down or serve them. Now, the point here, we say, well, is that just repeating the first commandment? Well, no. The point here has more to do not so much with who we worship, but how we worship. God makes a point in Deuteronomy, we read this passage, I believe, last week, of saying, when you came to the mountain, remember, you did not see a form Your eyes did not see a form. You heard the word, the word of God. Now, very often images were made as a way of worshiping gods or actually a way of controlling gods. And God says, no, I'm not to be worshiped in that way. You're not to make some carved image uh, that represents me because you don't control me and you don't reduce me in that way. Uh, not to make some carved image or bow down to it. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And we think of jealousy being bad, but it can be a good thing. A husband should be jealous for the affections of his wife, the wife for her husband. That's a well-placed jealousy. You should be jealous for that because you have a right to that. It belongs to you. And God is saying the worship of his people belongs to him, And he will not have that worship given to another god. And he he will not have his worship diminished through some object that represents him. That's why in the Reformed tradition, and especially in the uh, more Puritan-influenced tradition of Scottish and therefore American Presbyterianism, uh, you don't see icons, you don't see statues, you don't see images. You see a rather plain, attractive in that way, room. But you don't see a lot of images. And the reason for that is this passage. Now, a lot of debate gets into whether or not we can make a depiction of Jesus or not. It's worth remembering that if Peter were to come and see your picture of Jesus, the apostle Peter would look at it and say, who's that? He would say, well, that's Jesus. And Peter would say, well, no, it's not. I'm, you know, That doesn't look like Jesus. 
Uh, a lot of debate over that. Our Sunday school curriculum, by the way, with Great Commission publication, does not use pictures of Jesus in it as such. Uh, some debate over that. Jesus did look like somebody, no doubt. He took to himself a physical body, and uh, I'm not going to solve that for you in the time we have here today, but simply to point out that God comes through word, not image, and forbids making images of him. Third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 7, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We tend to think of that as in terms of using God's name carelessly as an expletive or even as a profanity. Uh, and I suppose that that would be included, but the primary view seems to be in the context of vows. That when we take vows with God as our witness, we don't want to take that name in an empty way. Which I think informs a great deal about our wedding vows, which are taken in the presence of God, uh, taken with God as our witness. And we want to be careful that we don't take that name in an empty way and disregard our wedding vows or our church membership vows or our officer ordination vows or whatever it might be. Uh, but when we take God's name to ourselves, it should be with the utmost seriousness. And sure, certainly the name of God is holy, and we should only utter it with respect and with regard for who he is. The last Godward commandment has to do with the Sabbath. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. <clears throat> Interesting it should be put in that way. Certainly going forward they are to remember it. But it may be that going back as something they had been doing, they are to remember it and continue to do it. Remember Exodus 16, they were not to go out and gather manna on the Sabbath day, but rather the day before to have enough for two days and to rest on the Sabbath day. Uh, this principle of rest on the seventh day didn't begin with Exodus 20. It didn't begin in Exodus 16. It began with creation, with God's pattern of creating the six days, resting on the seventh. We say, well, we're not here on Saturday. We're here on Sunday, the first day of the week. That's true uh, with the entry into the new covenant, with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, marking the new rest that we have in Christ, a rest that looks forward more than it looks back. We do meet on the first day of the week, the day of resurrection, the day of the uh, really the uh, the inauguration of the new covenant with Jesus resurrection, looking forward to a new rest that awaits us rather than the rest of God that is in the past, although certainly we regard that as well. But it was to be a day of rest uh, set aside, not to do work on it, following the pattern of the Lord. And therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. All too often, we tend to look at the Sabbath as a, as a restriction rather than an opportunity, uh, the opportunity to have this day, to spend in worship, to spend in uh, maybe reading Christian books that you just don't have time or energy to read during the week. The question for the Sabbath is not what I can get away with. The question is, how can I use this day, this gift of God, to further grow in my knowledge of him and to prepare myself to live for him in this week that is to come. Again, a lot of questions around Sabbath observance and so forth that are really outside the scope of what we're doing here, but simply to recognize that God calls Israel to recognize who they are as his people through honoring this Sabbath day, keeping it for his glory and for their benefit. Then we come to the remaining commandments, which have to do with the relationship of people, between people, uh, within families, within society. Verse, four, uh, verse 12, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. 
really a, a regard for the integrity of the home, uh, more generally a regard for the integrity of authority in society, where there is disregard for authority in the home or in society. A breakdown occurs, and, and we, we see that. Uh, it's a commandment given with a promise that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, because Paul picks up in this in Ephesians. Uh, but recognizing the authority of our parents, honoring them. That may look different if you're a six-year-old child than it does if you're a 36-year-old adult. Uh, but the point of honoring that authority, that structure that God has given for the family, and by extension in society. Uh, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Uh, the word there specifically has the idea of taking human life unjustly, uh, not just for killing generally, uh, but striking a blow against the image of God in people who are unique, who are different from the animals. Uh, God wants us not to abuse animals. Proverbs tells us a righteous man has regard for the life of his animal. However, people are in a distinct class being made in the image of God, and murder is a unique crime of killing because it is an attack on the value of that person and on the image of God in that person. You shall not commit adultery. Again, a boundary designed to protect the integrity of the marriage relationship. Um, I think also our, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is correct when it looks not only at the prohibitions, but the corresponding positive commandment. Here, to pursue purity in our thinking, in our lives, uh, before the Lord. But this boundary uh, for purity, for godliness in our sexuality. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, verse 15, respecting the right of property. Uh, that if, uh, if, if the, the right of ownership of property, which is considerably elaborated on in the law, uh, is violated. Again, society begins to break down, a recognition of, of ownership. Uh, for truth, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, the ninth commandment. Uh, the need, certainly if you're on the witness stand, to tell the truth, because justice relies on true information. Without good information, you can't have good justice. Uh, but, of course, by extension to truth-telling at all times, uh, to, to always speak what is true and what is right. The last commandment, the tenth, you shall covet your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, Shall not cover your neighbor's wife, male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, anything that's your neighbor's, uh, is interesting because there's, there's really no outward manifestation of it. Uh, stealing might be, but it's a separate commandment. This is one that itself does deal with the heart. It deals with an attitude. Some have said that if you break any of the other commandments, you've broken the tenth commandment. If you break any of the other commandments, you've broken the first commandment. You've had another God, or you've desired something that God has not seen fit, at least at this time, to give you. Uh, to covet doesn't mean you might desire to do something or have something someday, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a, primarily an attitude of discontent, uh, almost grumbling against God, wanting what God, for some reason, hasn't seen fit to give you at this point. So these are all on the horizontal level, although obviously... That God sees, they affect our relationship with him as well. If we just do these things, God's going to love us, right? Wrong. Unless you do them all perfectly, outwardly, and from the heart. You haven't done it. You're guilty already in Adam anyway. Uh, no. There's an analogy I like to use. The Ten Commandments are not a ladder to heaven. They are a hammer that beats us down. They expose our sin. 
They drive us to the cross. More on that in just a minute. Uh, but they are the path, the boundaries that God provides to protect his people, to protect their society, to protect their marriage, to protect their relationship with him. They are the guardrails, the boundaries <clears throat> that keep us from wandering into harmful and dangerous areas. But the last thing we want to see here, not only looking at this, the grace God has shown his people, the boundaries that God sets for his people, but then finally the provision God makes for his people. A lot of verses left, but we can go through them pretty quickly here. The, the provision God makes for his people. What's their reaction? Their reaction is, we don't want to hear from God anymore. Not only because of his presence, but because of what he's saying here. Who has kept these? Who can do these? You see, God immediately makes provision for his people. In verses 18 through 21, in the face of his holiness, their dread of him, their fear of him, he allows a mediator, Moses. The people say, let Moses be our go-between. Then God provides a better mediator than Moses in time. He provides the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the go-between between you, the fallen creature, and a holy God. Last Sunday night in Hebrews, we were talking about the fact that no one wants to enter. You do not want to enter into the presence of God without a mediator. You do not want to be exposed to the holiness of God. Without Christ. That's why no one comes to God without Christ. You can't, but if you were to, his holiness would break out against you. You'd be destroyed. Talked about that here too. Um, so God provides a mediator, a go-between, the Lord Jesus Christ, who through his blood has paid for our sins, through his righteousness has clothed us. But you see, here forever, our relationship to God is mediated by, made possible by, comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, just as Moses was that go-between. Christ is our go-between between us and a holy God. So in the face of, the, of his holiness, he provides for their need. But also uh, in these remaining verses, 22 through 29, in the face of our need. Immediately after the Ten Commandments, there's talk of altars. What is an altar? It's a place to, to worship by making a sacrifice. It's a place to pay for sins. It's a place of atonement. No sooner does God give the Ten Commandments than he starts to instruct them about altars. And he goes on to give them in great detail the whole sacrificial system. If they could keep the commandments, they wouldn't need the sacrifices. But they do. And we do. Our altar is not here an earthen altar or a stone altar. Our altar is the cross, where our great high priest, Jesus, offered up himself is the payment for our sins, for our disobedience to these commandments, and gives to us his own perfect obedience to these commandments. See, dear friends, when the Lord gives the law to his people, he says, I have saved you, I have redeemed you by my free grace. You are righteous in Christ, and here is how I call upon you to live, for my glory and for your well-being. Our sinful nature wants to go beyond, wants to pass those boundaries, wants to live where God has told us not to go. What happens when we do that? We hurt ourselves. We harm others. We scar ourselves. We scar others. God says, here is the path that I lay before you to walk in as my people. It reflects my own character, he says, and it will result in blessing for you. Do we do it perfectly? No. But we do it as best we can by his grace, because in this way there is blessing. 
But then God immediately says, when we violated these laws, we have a mediator, the Lord Jesus, who goes between us, who makes peace between us through his shed blood and righteousness. And he also says, you have an altar, the cross, where Jesus offered up himself for your sins. Dear friends, the lesson of the Ten Commandments is not try harder. Just hunker down, grit your teeth, be good. The lesson is God has redeemed us in Christ Jesus. If you have trusted in him, you are one of his people. And God lays down this pattern of life. Otherwise, how would we know how to live as his people? And says, here is the path I have for you, a path of life, a path of blessing. All the while recognizing, as John says so many, so many years later, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Let the Ten Commandments point you to Jesus. Let Jesus lead you back to obedience in the Ten Commandments. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage, for these laws, Lord, in so many ways uh, misunderstood or even abused in our society. And yet, Lord, what a blessing they are. What a picture of your own faithfulness, your own righteousness, your own integrity, your own holiness. Father, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that as we grow in grace, our lives more and more would reflect the standard of these laws that you've given to us, these boundaries that you've put into place. Father, we thank you that when we stand before you now, when we stand before you on that great day, that it's Jesus' record, his obedience, his righteousness that is ours. Pray in his name. Amen.